I got uh, Kevin's name and um, sent him an email. And when I met him in person, I was surprised. <laughs> I thought he was Chinese because uh, the last name Lum, I was assuming he was Chinese. Um, but are you by any? No? Okay, I guess not. Um, but it's good to be here with you. Um, about 20 years ago in 1996, I was pastor of a church plant in the Boston-Cambridge area. And we met in a building that looked very much like this in the heart of an inner city urban neighborhood uh, with a lot of young people very much like this. Uh, so it's reminiscent of the good old days of the early years of church planning when we had to set up all our chairs and set up all the sound equipment and do all the things that it takes to, uh, to operate a church. Uh, and I also remember just because uh, it gets hot in Boston as well in July and August, uh, the window units, because you can't afford central air, the window units of a local church that couldn't afford central air. Uh, so I'm very thankful to be here with you this morning. I want to talk to you about uh, the importance of lament in our theological ecclesial life and the problem when lament is absent from how we live out our lives. I'll begin with a confession, and my confession is that for the last 15 years, I've made the exact same New Year's resolution, and I make the same one every year because I'm not living up to it. And that resolution is to lose a little bit of weight and get a little more fit. And every year I make that resolution, I fail, so the next year I have to keep making that resolution. So this past year, I said I'm going to take this even more seriously. I'm going to make sure that I figure out really the best way to lose weight and get fit. And so I went online and... Uh, Googled what is the most popular way for exercise in 19, uh, 2016. Turns out it's something called CrossFit. How many of you have heard of it? CrossFit, P90X, okay, some of you look like you're doing it, you look healthy. Um, now, I've never done it, but I was told that this was the most effective means of exercise. And as I was reading up on CrossFit and P90X, I learned that their approach to exercise has been my approach all my life, which is something called muscle confusion. This is the philosophy behind CrossFit. And I love that approach because that's the way I've approached exercise. I, the way I've applied it, of course, is I don't go to the gym for months and months and months and months. And when I finally go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why we're there. So muscle confusion has been my approach to exercise all of my life. Um, as I began to think about what it means to be physically healthy and physically fit through the concept of confusion and disruption, began to ask the question, maybe this is also the way we should approach our spiritual fitness and our spiritual health, that maybe disruption and confusion is not necessarily a bad thing, but it might actually be a good thing that leads us to greater health and greater fitness in our spiritual lives. And I raise this because what I realized over many years of being a pastor and now a seminary professor and visiting a lot of churches, I mean a lot of churches, that the idea of disruption is not a good idea for many of our churches. In fact, what we want from our churches is an affirmation of how we live our lives, an affirmation of the things that we are currently doing, and what we don't want is that confusion or disruption of the status quo. And I encountered this uh, in the last book that I just finished uh, last year, and it's now available, uh, when I looked through the Book of Lamentations and did a book on Lamentations. How many of you have ever read the book of Lamentations? That's not bad. How many of you have ever, ever heard a sermon series on the book of Lamentations? Like a whole six weeks or five weeks on Lamentations. That's about right. Maybe one out of a hundred people or so. That's pretty much normative for our encounter. Is that me or is that the microphone? We're gonna try another one? Uh, so that's kind of par for the course 
when it comes to the book of Lamentations. Very few of us have read it. Very few of us have engaged in it. All right, good. Are we on? How are we? Good? All right. I talk loud, too, so we're going to be okay. Feedback? Getting some feedback? All right, so the book of Lamentations is not a common book of the Bible that we engage in, uh, but also it is conspicuously absent not only in our teaching life and our preaching life as a church, but it's conspicuously absent in our worship life as a church. Uh, Denise Hopkins, who teaches right down the street here or a little further down the street here at Wesley Seminary, uh, I took Hebrew with her way, way back in the day. And Denise Hopkins, who uh, uh, teaches on the Psalms, uh, writes about how in many of our liturgical traditions in America, and that would be the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, etc., that many of these churches, which are given guidelines on what books of the Bible to preach on, what uh, hymns and psalms to read and to sing, uh, that these churches, which when assigned psalms of lament or the book of lamentations, would just skip it, would just leave it out, or replace the psalms of lament or passages in lament and replace it with the happier psalms or with happier hymns. Uh, Glenn Pemberton did a similar study with Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals. And he notes that if you look at the 150 books, 150 chapters of the book of Psalms, you'll notice that about 60% of those 150 Psalms are what we would call Psalms of praise or celebration. And 40% of our 150 Psalms in the Bible, which is essentially the worship life of the nation of Israel, are Psalms of lament, Psalms about suffering and pain. And he notes that if you look at the typical Baptist or Presbyterian hymnal, only about 15% of our hymns are psalms or hymns of suffering and lament. And that's what's just in the hymnals and not necessarily what we sing on a typical Sunday. Uh, we can take this to another level and I, and I uh, examine something called the CCLI list. Uh, anybody know what the CCLI list is? CCLI, you've heard of CCLI? You should hear of it because every time you project a contemporary worship song on the screen, you're supposed to have a little line at the bottom that says CCLI licensing number, and it gives you a six to eight digit number, which gives you the right to project these contemporary worship songs that are not in your hymnals, that are not published anywhere. So at the end of each month or at the end of the year, you're supposed to submit to the national offices of CCLI the songs that you have sung on a typical Sunday, and they keep a list of the top 100 most popular contemporary worship songs that are sung in the United States. And then at the end of that year, they divvy up the royalties and you get like a hundredth of a cent for every time somebody sings your song. So it's to keep track of all the contemporary worship songs that are not typically in the, uh, in the hymnals or other published places. So every year at the end of August, actually, right about now, they publish the list of the top 100 most popular contemporary worship songs in America. Now, how many of you say, just like in the Bible, that 40% of our top 100 contemporary worship songs are songs about suffering, songs about pain, songs about lament? 40%. Raise your hand. 40%. No? How about 25%? How about like the hymnals, 15%? How about 10%? 
I think anywhere from about five to ten of the top 100 popular contemporary worship songs could be considered songs of lament. And I went through every single song from two years ago when the book was being written. I went through every single song, went through every single lyric, just finding, trying to look desperately for any song that sounded like lament and found that only about five to ten of our top 100 worship songs are songs of lament. What this seems to indicate is that in the church in America, we are avoiding stories of suffering. We are avoiding themes of lament. And we want to jump so quickly to a happy, triumphalistic ending that we forget that there is a lot of suffering along the way. It reveals not only this kind of deficiency in the church, but it reveals how the church has bought into the narrative of larger American society. That we believe that the people of the American church are so exceptional, just like our nation is so exceptional, that we're not supposed to suffer. We're not supposed to have difficult times. We're not supposed to go through challenges and lament and suffering. And so what we've done is we've created a theological vacuum in our lives. We have created an absence of an important part of the biblical story, the absence of lament. So I want to introduce you to one of the most lament-filled books of the Bible, the book of Lamentations. Um, I was introduced to this book almost 20 plus years ago in 1996 when we started our church in the Boston area. We were drawing a lot of young people from Cambridge, Boston. And I had spent five years on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, so we were drawing a lot of students from Harvard, from MIT, from Wellesley, Boston University, Boston College, Tufts University, etc. These were some of the brightest minds you could imagine gathered together for academic work uh, in the city of Boston. And I realized that with this very accomplished group of individuals, we could push that agenda further to say, now do even more great things for God, because you're already doing great things for God. You're doing great things by being at Harvard, by being at MIT. Now go out and do more great things and conquer the world with your Christian ideals. Or I could call them to go and read the book of Lamentations. So for the first sermon series that I ever did at my church plant, I did a sermon series on the book of Lamentations, which now as a church planning professor, I teach church planning at my school, would be the last thing I would tell my students to do. You do not open up a new church with a week, a week after week of lamenting. It's just not secret sensitive. It's not user friendly. It's not the thing you want to do. Uh, but I did. I opened up that sermon series because I realized that this narrative of American church and American exceptionalism and triumphalism was undermining the gospel, was actually taking us away from the message of the gospel and moving us towards an American exceptionalism and triumphalism. And we have seen the evidence of that kind of teaching where we have talked about exceptionalism and triumphalism of the American church and American society, and we are seeing the evidences, the, 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 the bad, rotten fruit of that kind of teaching over the last 20 years in our church. We're seeing the evidence of that in our politics right now, a dysfunctional American exceptionalism and triumphalism that has led to some severe, severe problems in our political dialogue. So I want us to bring us back to the discipline of lament, the narrative of lamentations. Uh, let me give you a quick background about the book of Lamentations. This is written right after, actually, do we have the slides up? Okay, that's fine. Uh, this was written right after um, the fall of Jerusalem. 
Most of you know the story. Israel is a great nation under David and Solomon. David is able to establish military power uh, in the ancient Near East. Solomon is a great economic leader, able to establish economic power. And under the reign of David and Solomon, Israel is considered one of the great, greatest nations of its time. However, the subsequent kings of Israel are not as godly. The, the people of God are led away to worship idols and false gods. And so at the end of that process, uh, after several generations of following false gods and idols, God needs to bring judgment upon Israel. He does. He conquers and destroys the northern kingdom when the Assyrians come and wipe them out. And then the southern kingdom is eventually wiped out by the Babylonians until all that's left of the great nation of Israel is simply the city of Jerusalem itself. And then Jerusalem is eventually laid siege. They are wiped out. The Babylonians are very upset that Jerusalem refused to give up, so they destroy the entire city. They burn the crops and they salt the fields so that nothing can grow from those lands again. They tear down the walls. They go to the temple, which had been the symbol of their wealth and symbol of their greatness and power, and they tear it down. They take everything out and they strip the, the temple of all its uh, treasures, and they tear down the walls of the temple and of the city until after that process, the Babylonians essentially have left uh, Jerusalem as a pile of rubble. Uh, to even further that, um, the Babylonians said, we want to make sure that this country and this city never again confronts us and never again stops us from conquering the ancient Near East. So they took the most able-bodied, the prophets, the priests, the kings, the learner, the intellig intelligentsia, anybody who they thought could rebuild Israel's society or Jerusalem, they took them away and sent them away into exile. And of course, you know the story of Daniel and his friends in exile. That's why they were there, because they took away anybody they said could rebuild that city. So think of it in these terms. Uh, the U.S. is conquered. D.C. is the only city left. The marauders come in from North Korea, according to some of these movies. All these North Korean conquerors come into the city of D.C., and they tear everything down. They tear down the monuments. They tear down the capital. And then they take all of you, because all of you fit that category of able-bodied, intelligent, uh, thoughtful, educated, those who could potentially rebuild that society. And everybody like you, and they take you, and they sent away into exile into North Korea. So once that happens, all that's left of the city are those that the Babylonians have deemed as unable to rebuild that society. The poor, the lame, the sick, the blind, the crippled, the widows and the orphans. They're the only ones left in that capital city with a belief that certainly these folks could never rebuild that city. And it is into that context that we encounter the story of Lamentations. That the people of God at that moment of brokenness, at that moment of devastation when everything has been lost, they actually have three choices I want to talk about. The first choice is to run away and hide and say, we're done being the people of God. We've lost our homes. We've lost our city. We've lost our nation. We're done. We're going to run away and hide. That's the first option. The second option is to say, we've lost to these conquerors. We're going to give in to them. We're going to do what they do because they beat us. We're going to if we can't beat them, then we might as well join them. Let's just use the methods, the techniques that these folks are using. So you have the first two negative options. The first is to give up, and the second is to give in. The third option, which I'm going to advocate for, is the option of lamentation, to enter into a period of lament over the broken cities. Those are the three choices that stand before Israel at this moment in its history. The response to that first temptation to run away and hide 
is challenged by Jeremiah in chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. And in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, a familiar passage, it says, This is what the Lord God says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, marry, have children, and give your children in marriage. Children in marriage increase in number, do not decrease. Verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, think of what's happening there. Jeremiah writes to the exiles. They've lost everything, and their temptation is to give up, to run away and hide. And God, through Jeremiah, says clearly, you do not have that option. You are not allowed to run away and hide. In fact, you are supposed to live life and, verse 7, seek the peace of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Now, just a quick Bible quiz. Anywhere else in the Bible you see the phrase, seek the peace, what city is almost always affiliated with seeking the peace of? Seek the peace of? Jerusalem, consistently, everywhere else in the Bible, almost every other time in the Bible, every time you see the phrase, seek the peace, it's seek the peace of Jerusalem. This is one of, the, one of the very, very few times where you're not seeking the peace of Jerusalem, but you're seeking the peace of Babylon, of all places to seek the peace of. Now, Jerusalem makes sense. It's the city of David, city of God's peace. Of course you seek the peace of Jerusalem, but now you're told not seeking the peace of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of Babylon. Now the people of God are in the most wicked city imaginable. The biblical narrative consistently has Jerusalem as the heavenly city, Babylon as the satanic demonic city. It carries through all the way into the New Testament, into the book of Revelation. And here God says not to seek the peace of Jerusalem, which would make total sense, but seek the peace of Babylon, which to the people of Israel makes absolutely no sense. Because Babylon is the center of all that is wrong with the world, and yet you're calling us to seek the peace of Babylon. In other words, no matter how messed up you think the world is, no matter how evil you think and broken and sinful your circumstances are, Christians, followers of God, do not have the option of giving up even in the very worst of circumstances. Even when things are falling apart, you do not have the right to run away and hide. You seek the peace of Jerusalem, of course, but you also seek the peace of Babylon. Now, I raise this because if you look at our American church history, that is not what we've done as a church. In fact, we have not sought the peace of our cities. We have run away and hid and run away from the problems of our cities. I'll give you an example of this. In the early stages of church history, maybe the very earliest account of an American city is given by John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts, who pulls up to the Massachusetts Bay, and he looks over what will eventually become the great city of Boston, and he says what? I envision a city set on a hill. And the idea was that the cities in America, the cities of North America, cities of the United States, will eventually be places where the light of the gospel will go forth into all the world. There was a very optimistic view of these urban centers in the new world. And so Winthrop could say, I envision cities set on a hill, and the city of Boston took that to heart, and the, one of the main cities in the city of Boston is called Beacon Street. And one of the most important neighborhoods in Boston is called Beacon Hill. So there was this self-perception 
that American urban centers were places where the light of the gospel was going to go forth into all the world, cities set on a hill. And that narrative holds from the 17th into the 18th, about the middle of the 19th century, when the narrative begins to change. So cities in America are new Jerusalems and new Zions until the middle of the 19th century, when something changes in the city. Two factors. One is immigration from those outside of Western and Northern Europe. So prior to the 19th century, most of the immigrants into urban centers were Western European or Northern European, and they were by, by and large German Protestants, Scottish Presbyterians, uh, European, uh, Western European Protestants. And so the perception of urban centers as cities set on a hill where the light of white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism would go forth was a given until the 19th century when immigration pattern begins to change. And you start getting the influx, not of Western European immigrants, but of Southern and Eastern European immigrants. So now the cities are filled not with German Protestants and Scottish Presbyterians, they're filled with Italian Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Eastern European Jews. And now these cities that have been viewed as Jerusalems are now viewed as Babylon. Babylon. Because it is no longer the center of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant life. In fact, one of the movies that I saw many years ago on DVD was a movie called The Gangs of New York by Martin Scorsese. Any of you remember that movie? Um, you know, I write a lot about race and about urban ministries. So, oh, you're going to love this movie. It's about a race war in New York. It's like, great. Can't wait to see it. So I get it. I put it on DVD and I'm watching it and I say, this is not a race war in New York. This is one gang led by Daniel Day-Lewis, the whitest man in Hollywood, fighting another gang led by Leonardo DiCaprio, the second whitest man in Hollywood, and this is not a race war. Now, what was going on there? It was the Western and Northern European nativists, the white uh, uh, Protestants, fighting against the new immigrants who were from the Southern and Eastern European states, and that was considered a race war. It was a cultural conflict. And so that change in American cities meant that the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who had once viewed their cities as Jerusalem began to change their narrative about the urban centers. Now there's a second factor which actually sealed the deal from the 19th well into the 20th century. And that movement post-Civil War, past World War II, is something we now call not immigration, but the Great Migration. And this is the movement of African Americans from the southern states into the northern and eastern cities. So post-Civil War, you have Emancipation Proclamation, you have about 80 to 90% of African Americans living in the Mississippi Delta. Now many try to reestablish and build their own communities. They are burnt and destroyed by the Klan. So now you have, where do we go? We cannot go back to the plantation. There's no uh, uh, cities or homes that we can build here. So the African Americans start moving in huge numbers to Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and New York. Now, one thing to know about this great migration is that it was significantly Christian. As someone who studies the area of evangelism, I have no doubt and no problem saying that the conversion of African Americans post-Civil War is the most significant evangelistic effort in the entirety of U.S. history. It was not Billy Graham. It was not uh, uh, seeker-sensitive megachurches. It was not Billy Sunday or Charles Finney or even Jonathan Edwards. The greatest revival that this country has ever experienced is the conversion of African Americans post-Emancipation Proclamation, 
where within one generation, anywhere from 75 to 90% of African Americans convert to Christianity, join churches, become members of Baptist and Methodist and Holiness and Pentecostal churches. And they're fired up with the gospel of Jesus Christ with this massive conversion. And they bring that faith to the northern cities. If you read some of the accounts of that great migration, it is very spiritually infused. It's about going to the promised land. It's singing songs about glory land. There's this huge, powerful spiritual renewal that comes out of the African-American community in the deep south, moving into these urban centers in the east coast and in the Midwest and in the north. Now, in that movement, you get massive revival in these urban centers. Churches start up everywhere. It's a number of things that I've been studying in the city of Chicago where you see thousands of storefront churches and dozens of megachurches. The first megachurches in the U.S. was not Saddleback, was not Willow Creek. The first megachurches in the U.S. were African-American churches on the south side of Chicago where you had churches numbering several thousand people when the cities weren't even that large. Detroit had a church of 10,000 people way before Detroit became a major city. Why? Because African Americans were bringing their vibrant spiritual renewal and spiritual revival to these urban centers in the north and in the east coast. And the cities were coming alive with the gospel. But what was happening to the existing white Anglo-Saxon Protestant churches in these urban centers? They were saying, even though these communities coming in were on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were saying, well, our schools aren't quite that good anymore. Our real estate prices are dropping. Our streets aren't quite as safe as they used to be. And what led to what we now have well documented, the movement of white flight, where white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in huge numbers left the city in droves, moving at a rapid rate out of urban centers like Chicago to the southern suburbs, to the western suburbs, to the northern suburbs. So what we've developed is a narrative in American history where the churches, especially white, fundamentalist, evangelical, Protestant churches, instead of saying, we are going to be part of the move of God in urban centers, the narrative historically has been, we're actually going to run away and hide when difficult times come. We're going to run away and get away from the dangers of the city. And the language changes from Chicago as the place of a gospel going forth to Chicago is a place where all those shootings occur. Chicago is all of those places where, you know, even a basketball star's cousin is not exempt and therefore you need to vote for a certain candidate because so many bad things are happening in the urban centers. So we have created a narrative in the American church of running away and hiding when difficult times arise. One of the ways that it's evident is in the architecture of the churches that were built around this time of white flight. Now, uh, I actually had a slide of this, and then I realized, actually, this building is a perfect example of the architecture of its time. So from 1945 to 1960, at the kind of the height of the white flight from urban centers into the suburban communities, we saw a lot of this mainly because post-World War II, there was a GI Bill that allowed, and then there was this, a whole bunch of things around mortgages that allowed white families, not families of color, but that allowed white families to leave the cities and move into suburban communities. From 1945 to 1960 then, there's this migration outward, the white flight, but there's also the migration not only of the population, but the churches followed as well. 
1945, uh, Bob Orsi points out that about 20 to 25 million dollars were spent on new buildings in the entire U.S. Now think about that amount. That's what one church these days spends on one building in the U.S. But only 20 to 25 million was spent in 1945. Why? Because most of the cities already had buildings like this. They were available. In 1960, that number of new building construction money jumps to $1 billion. So in 15 years, you go from 20 to $25 million spent on new buildings and to $1 billion spent on new buildings. Why? Because the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants have left the city, moved to the suburbs, and built new sanctuaries in the suburban areas. And one of the things in that time period, from about 45 to wait, probably into 75, 1980s, is that most of the sanctuaries look like what you see above you. Now, I was at a church building dedication in about 1977-78. We were dedicating a new church building, and I'm about 10 years old. And I walk into that building. It was a northeastern city. It was February. It was cold. And I knew immediately as a 10-year-old whose stupid idea was to build the sanctuary like this. It made no sense whatsoever. Now, you can't imagine it now on a 90-degree day, but imagine February in D.C. where the heating vents are here and the rafters are that high. Where does all that wonderful warm air go? Right up into the rafters. And you have the frozen chosen here and all that warm air up into the rafters. So you've developed a church architecture that is completely, doesn't make any sense. So then eventually you have to put ceiling fans and then charismatics can't come worship with you because their hands kept hitting the ceiling fans when they raised their hands. So you end up with a form of architecture that doesn't make any sense. As a 10-year-old, I knew this. Buildings going on, saying, whose stupid idea was to build this building like this where all the heat goes up into this big uh, open area? The pastor gets up. And he says, I built this building this way. I wanted the sanctuary to look like this. And he gave the reason why. He said, imagine this entire church building turned upside down. So imagine this building turned upside down. And he says, what would you be looking at if that was the bottom and this was the top? And he said, you're looking at the bottom of a boat. Doesn't that look like the hull of a ship, right? Doesn't that look like the hull of a ship? Now, where in the Bible do you read about a really big boat? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Now, tell me, what do you tell the world when you call yourselves or identify yourself as a church as Noah's Ark? What are you saying about the world out there? You're saying, we don't care if you get destroyed and judged by the fires of hell and the, and the judgment of God. In fact, that's what we want. We want you to be destroyed by the judgment of God as long as we are safe here in Noah's Ark. And as long as we've got a little bit of the world out there in here. So if you've got secular art, we're going to have Christian art. If you've got secular music, we're going to have mediocre Christian music. <laughs> if you've got secular crayons, I'm going to have Christian crayons. Secular underwear, Christian underwear, everything that's out there in the secular world, we're going to have a little microcosm of here in Noah's Ark, and we want to be safe in Noah's Ark. And these are the buildings that are getting built during the time of white flight. Now, how do you do evangelism out of Noah's Ark? Very poorly, very poorly. So you're on the Ark, you're loving life on the Ark, you've set things away in the Ark just the way you like it, 
And then all of a sudden, oh, Uncle Joe is floating by. Now, you love Uncle Joe. He's family. So, you, of course, you're going to throw out a little lifesaver, bring him on board and say, Uncle Joe, we're so glad you're here. We're so thankful that you're here. You're going to fit right in. You're going to love what we do on this ark. Come on in, Uncle Joe. Be a part of this family on this ark. But then your neighbor floats by. And then you remember, oh, wait a minute now. He borrowed my mower about a week ago. He hasn't given it back. And also, I'm not sure he's going to fit with the culture of this ark. You know, we do things a certain way on this ark. You know, we clap to a particular rhythm. We sing certain songs. We have certain types of food. And if he's coming on board, he's going to want other types of food. He's going to want hot sauce on his food that we don't have. Gochujang is not going to fit with the, the food that we've made. Gochujang and macaroni and cheese just does not work together. Those of you who know who Gochujang is, it's a Korean hot sauce. So how are we going to get this guy in our boat to fit in? Well, we can't. He's not going to fit in. He's not one of us. So maybe there's an ark down the street that will be more for his kind of person. And sadly, that's what the church became in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, even unto this day. Extremely segregated. Because we're thinking, we just want to be safe in Noah's ark. Our desire is comfort in Noah's ark. Without thinking, maybe God has called us to be salt and light into the world. So we do not have the option of running away and hiding. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7 points that out to us. The next verse, 29 verses 8 through 9 points out, not only are you not allowed to run away and hide, actually let me, let me, let me stop there and, and, and offer one more thing. Uh, not only are we allowed, not allowed to run away and hide from what happened 20 years ago, but we're certainly not allowed to run away and hide from what's happening right now in our society. And one of the most significant things, as most of you know, is the browning of America. In 1965, there were very clear laws prior to 1965 that said we were going to limit immigration from certain people groups. The first of these laws was something called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Can anybody guess what that did? Yes, it excluded Chinese people. So in other words, there was pretty clear blatant racism in how people were allowed to come into the U.S. There was no excuses made. This was outright, we are going to exclude Chinese people just because they're Chinese. That's pretty much what it was. And so there was a whole series of laws like this, the Chinese exclusion just being one of the first. And so by 1965, when the laws do change, the bulk of immigration is only European. Because there are clear laws that says, if you are from this continent, you are not really welcomed here in the United States. Now in 1965, that law changes. Now, what didn't change was the quota on the number of immigrants. That actually didn't change. It would gradually increase, but 1965 did not open the floodgates of immigration. It just changed the pieces of the pie of immigration. So if it was overwhelmingly European prior to 1965, now the laws change so that there's still a million people coming as the previous year, but now they are Asians and Latinos and Africans who are allowed to come into the U.S. And that changes immigration patterns from 1965 forward, so much so that American society as a whole, through legal immigration, has become much more diverse. By 19, uh, I want to make sure I get these numbers right. Uh, by 2008, a third of all Americans were of non-European descent. So we crossed a major threshold seven years ago. By 2011, this is the, one of the most significant threshold, by 2011, a third of all, I'm sorry, half of all the children in the U.S. born were of non-European descent. So the birth rate passed the 50% mark 
five years ago. And it's not going below 50%. It's going above, further and further above 50%. By 2023, half of all children in the U.S. under the age of 18 will be of non-European descent. So if you're following these numbers, these numbers have nothing to do with new immigrants. They have everything to do with birth rates. So if 2011, half the children born are of non-European descent. By 2023, half of all children are, to, are of non-European descent. By 2042, all, half of all of America are going to be of non-European descent. That number, the change in the demographics of American society, the browning of America, has nothing to do with immigration per se, but it has everything to do with birth rates. In other words, no matter how big of a wall Mexico builds for us, it's not going to matter. We have the browning of America, the diversity of America, that's a done deal. It's tied to birth rates, not to immigration patterns. So if that's true, let's just deal with this reality. We can't make America white again because that's just not going to happen because of birth rates. It's based upon birth rates. So as we're dealing with this reality of birth rates, we have to deal with the reality of the church, which is the church is also becoming much more ethnically diverse and racially diverse and culturally diverse. So we can either run away and hide, or we can say thanks be to God for bringing the nation to our doorsteps. Let me give you one more example of this. I've, and I've, I've, I'm still working through this because it is somewhat controversial, but I would say that uh, 25, 30 years ago, when I was in seminary and college, in college in, in particular, uh, when I was part of InnoVarsity groups and I would go to Urbana and I would go to these mission conferences, the number one topic of prayer, the unreached people group, the most unreached people group were the communist bloc, right? We prayed a lot, and some of you are about 20 years old, so you don't remember, but 20 to 30 years ago, when we started meeting and, and praying about missions and the mission frontier, it was all about the communist bloc, we're going to pray for the Soviet Union, we're going to pray for China, and we did for several years, and guess what? God answered our prayer. The, the, the Iron Curtain fell. And if you're following any of the missiological numbers on China, China right now is either already or very close to becoming the largest Christian nation in the world, just in terms of sheer numbers. The national numbers from the state of from the uh, nation is that 30 million Christians are in China. Other numbers go up to as high as 250 million Christians in China. The U.S. population is 300 million. So if we're looking at the higher number, we're looking at a nation that is already more Christians in China than in the United States. So God has answered our prayer. Did the Iron Curtain fall? Did these former communist bloc nations? Now they are incredibly open to the gospel. But here's what happened. After God answered our prayer with the communist bloc, the missionaries and all these great evangelical Christians decided a new people group needed to be prayed for. And what people group did that turn out to be over the last 20 years? Muslims. Muslims. The Islamic community. And we have been praying in mission conference after mission conference, think tanks. I've been to them. Think tanks on missiology and how are we going to reach the gospel into this area that is so closed, just like the communist bloc was. How are we going to take the gospel into the Middle East, into the Arabic nations, into the Muslim nations, into these places where, where Islam is the stronghold? And so we've been praying for 20, 25 years. And God says, why don't I send 2,500 Muslim refugees to the United States? 
And the same people that for 25 years have been praying, Lord, give us access to these nations, are saying, oh, no, we don't want these Muslims in the United States. It makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever to pray for 25 years for God to open the door, and the second he opens it a peak and says, I'm just going to send 2,500 refugees. That's it. Just 2,500. We'll scatter them all over the U.S. We'll put them next to churches. Churches could actually sponsor them. And white evangelicals and evangelical Christians are the ones that are at the front line of saying, these are not the people we want in our nation. We run away and hide. We run away and hide. These are the elements of what Jeremiah is trying to confront here in chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. But he also says in verses 8 through 9, you can't fix this problem for yourself. Verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. If the first half of Jeremiah 29 is about not giving up, the second half is about not giving in. It says, don't listen to the false prophets and diviners among you. The word choice there of divination is very specific. Divination was a particular practice of the Babylonians. Uh, the way I would uh, identify divination and false prophecies this way. Uh, think of a vending machine. You go to a vending machine and uh, you want a particular product to come out of that vending machine. You want a Diet Coke. You're thirsting for a Diet Coke. So you put in your $5 to get that Diet Coke. And then at the end of that process, you punch in A7, which corresponds to the picture of the Diet Coke that you see on that machine. Now, your anticipation is that when you push A7 in the dollar amount, you're going to get a Diet Coke, right? That's what everybody wants. Now, if you do all that and you end up with Mountain Dew, you're, you're justifiably upset. And there's a 1-800 number you can call to express your anger. I asked for a Diet Coke. I got a Mountain Dew. This is, this is an injustice. We must confront this injustice. So you are dealing with this problem that the vending machine did not give you what you promised. Now, idolatry works the exact same way. Divination works the exact same way. You want a particular thing, you put in a particular effort, and you're going to get exactly what you asked for. That was the problem of why false worship and idolatry was so seductive to the nation of Israel. Because it works. You want something, you ask for it, you get it. If not, you move on. And the worship of Yahweh does not work that way at all. It's nothing to do with getting what you want. It's nothing to do with getting exactly what you asked for. But in fact, you might get exactly the opposite of what you're asking for. So Jeremiah 29 verses 8 through 9 reminds us, you are not allowed to use the methods of the world to fix the world's problems. You are not allowed to come in and say, I've got it all worked out and figured out, so let me go and help and solve everybody else's problems. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, about uh, four years ago, no, six years ago now, um, I was given a sabbatical from my school. And I was able to work it out so that I could spend a year away studying at Duke University, took my whole family down there, was away from my office for a year. Uh, if any of you have been away from your office for a week or two, you know how much junk mail accumulates. I was gone for a year. I had two piles of junk mail about this high. Uh, ironically, a lot of them from uh, Christian environmental agencies asking me to save paper. So I've got these two piles of paper, and I'm looking through all this material, and I'm throwing stuff out. And then I stumble across something that looked really interesting. On the cover it said, the poor you will not have with you. I'm thinking, I'm not quite sure that's what Jesus said. I think Jesus actually said the exact opposite. The poor you will have with you. 
So I love it when people twist scripture because I can use it in sermon illustration. So I open up this packet and I started reading through this material. I look at the DVD that it comes with it. And the teaching was essentially saying, we have a problem with extreme poverty in America, that I, uh, in, the, in the world. That I would not disagree with. We do have a problem with extreme poverty in the world, extreme hunger. These are major world problems that we do need to think and, pro and pray through. But the answer that this DVD was offering was, it is the job and responsibility of the American church to fix those problems in Africa. That they can't help themselves, so it is the American church's responsibility to go and fix their problems for them. Which ironically is how Africa got its problems in the first place, when the European powers said, oh, those poor Africans, they need this from us, they need this from us, they need this to fix them, so let's just dump our forms of government, let's just dump our way of doing economics, let's just dump everything onto Africa and fix Africa's problems, and several centuries later, we end up with extreme poverty in Africa. And now the churches are saying, let's go and fix Africa's problems for them. It is using the world's methods instead of what I think is needed, the process of lament, the discipline of lament. And that's what I'll leave you with today in terms of a final challenge. Are you in the discipline of lament? Because no, you're not going to be able to run away and hide. You're not allowed to do that. And no, you can't give in and say, I'm just going to do what the world does and fix the problems using the world's skills. But instead, are we in that place of hearing the lament, hearing the voices of the suffering? I'll give you two um, examples from the Book of Lamentations. The first example is that the Book of Lamentations is written in the format of what is called a funeral dirge. And it is intentionally written that way. And it's intentionally written at a funeral dirge because a funeral is different from a hospital visit. Most of the Psalms that are lament operate like a hospital visit. Think of it this way. You have a friend that's sick in the hospital. You go there, you hold their hand, you sing some songs, and you pray over them with the expectation and the hope that that person is getting out of the hospital. If not today, then maybe tomorrow, maybe a week from now. You go to a hospital visit with the positive expectation, generally speaking, that that person is going to get better. So that's what a lot of laments in the Psalms are, the, the plea to God for, to make things better. Now think, though, of the difference between going to a hospital to visit a sick person versus going to a funeral to honor a dead person. So Lamentations, and I can't get into the details of this by my book, goes into nine different characteristics that show that Lamentations is not a hospital visit, but a funeral dirge. It operates like a funeral over a dead body, in this case, the dead body of Jerusalem. You can't treat a dead body the same way you treat a hospital visit. In fact, if you were to do that, you would be, it would be very strange. It would be like the worst pastoral call ever. You go to a funeral and you start acting like it's a hospital and say, oh, this person's going to get better. Let's just join hands and sing Kumbaya and this person will clearly get better. What I've discovered is that in our dealings with social injustice issues, we think we're going to fix things like a hospital visit when actually we've got to deal with a funeral service. And I would especially point this out in terms of race relations in America. Most white Americans believe race is a hospital visit. You sit in a room, you join hands, you sing Kumbaya, and of course things are going to get better. When most people of color realize, actually we're dealing with a funeral service because we have a history of dead bodies in our history. We have the history of dead bodies taken from Africa. 
We have a history of dead bodies thrown overboard in the slave ships. We have the history of bodies raped on the plantations. We have a history of dead bodies lynched, hanging from the trees. We have a history of bodies sprayed by fire hoses. We have a history of bodies blown up in church buildings. We have a history of bodies ch chomped down by, by uh, police dogs. We have a history just in the last two years of young unarmed black men gunned down on our streets, not just once, but over and over and over again. And you can't come to those scenarios and say, let's all just sing hands, join hands, sing kumbaya, and be over with it. There is a dead body in the room. There are dead bodies in the room. The dead bodies of Native Americans littering the trail of tears. There are dead bodies all throughout our history. We cannot act like this is a simple hospital visit. We have to lament over the dead bodies in our story, in our history. So I would challenge us as a community, as the people of God in American churches right now, what does it mean to know the history of dead bodies, to know the stories, to know, to read the texts about dead bodies? I would also say it means, in, in correlation to that, is that the book of Lamentations challenges us to not only be at the funeral uh, service, but also to hear everyone's voice in that story. Um, Lamentations is an interesting book. The typical historical uh, attestation of the author is actually Jeremiah. And if you remember the history, Jeremiah makes the most sense. Because as I said, those who could read or write, those who could rebuild society, were all sent away into exile. And the only ones left were women, children, or those who couldn't, uh, who didn't, who couldn't rebuild society, who didn't have literacy skills. But Jeremiah was actually allowed to stay behind. Because if you look at the book of Jeremiah, he actually writes about giving into the Babylonians. They thought he was on their side. So Jeremiah will be one of the very few, if not the only candidate left in Jerusalem who could read or write, who could write down the things that we read in Lamentations. The, the argument against Jeremiah's authorship is that if you look at the book of Jeremiah and you look at the book of Lamentation, the writing style is like two different people. There's no way the person that wrote Jeremiah the, with the style of writing could have written Lamentations with the style of writing. It does not make sense at all. It's like two different people writing it. Well, what happened is Jeremiah probably wrote the words down, but he's actually not writing his words. He's writing the words of the women, the children, the elderly, the sick, the lame, the blind, the widows, and the orphans. Yes, he is the editor. Yes, he is the commentator, the reporter. But he's really more concerned about the voices of particularly the women, the widows, the elderly, the sick, the lame, and the blind, that those voices are heard. And if there's something to be said about lament, it is that the privilege should never lead that lament. It should be those who have suffered that lead the lament. And I would argue in American Christianity, we are so caught up to hearing the voices of the privilege that we don't hear lament of the suffering. A couple of ways that comes out. One, voices of women. We are horrible in the American church at listening to the voices of women. This is the, the area that, and you can look at liberal churches, conservative churches, it doesn't matter. The voices of women consistently are silenced in many of our conversations in the American church right now. Lamentations, I argue, is the most feminine book of the Bible because it is clearly the voice of the women that speak out in this text. We have to be better at listening to the voice of women. We have to be better at listening to voices of those 
who are different from us in terms especially of class, education, and economics. We tend to hear the voices of the privileged and not the voices of the marginalized. I raise this because um, um, usually when I fly into town for these kind of things, I, it's, it's too complicated for me to visit. As I grew up in this area, I still have family in Colombia and in Frederick, and to go from here to there is a little too far. Uh, but uh, my family still lives in this area. We come out here at least two or three times a year just to visit family. And, and my mom is uh, now in her 80s, uh, and uh, she, she has a, um, a dementia. She has uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, and what's been, what's been tough for me is that she has always been one of the sharpest, uh, godliest women that has been one of the best examples in my life. Uh, my mom, um, my dad left our family when I was about 10 years old. So here's a single mom who, an immigrant to the United States, doesn't speak much English, essentially took whatever job she could to keep her family together. Uh, she worked from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. at an inner city carryout in Baltimore. Um, and it's one of those places with the bulletproof glass in the front and the lazy Susan to pass the money and the food back and forth. She worked there from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, after that day shift, she would go to work at a night shift at an inner city nursing home in Catonsville in Baltimore. Uh, and she would work from 10 p.m. to 6 to 7 a.m., changing bedpans, answering night calls, and just being available as a nurse's aide throughout the night. She would rush home at 7 o'clock to our inner city Baltimore apartment. She would feed kids breakfast, or us breakfast, and then send us off to school, sleep for two hours, and then go back to her day job. And she would do this six days a week, um, 52 weeks out of the year for several, several years. Uh, she always kept the Sabbath and kept it holy. Uh, she never worked on Sunday, uh, at least during the day, and she would go to church and serve the deacons and elders of the church uh, meals uh, that, during that day. Uh, and as I've kind of struggled, especially with my mom's struggle with Alzheimer's and her inability to remember things and, and uh, short-term memory, her, that's where she's really suffered the most, um, is, the, is the real pain that in the American church, her story is irrelevant to what makes church great in America. Right? In fact, her story as an immigrant, as a single mom, as someone who, because she was struggling financially, had to be on food stamps for a time period in our lives. We had government cheese in the refrigerator because that's the food that we could eat. Uh, that we had food stamps and that we were on assisted care and we lived in assisted housing. That her story is the story that nobody wants to talk about. And everybody wants to talk about the young hipster pastor who has got the skinny jeans and the funky glasses and the perpetually young face. And that's the person we always want to hear when actually it's the voices of the most marginalized in our society that at this moment have the most to say to what our world is hap what's happening in our world right now. Are you listening to those voices of lament in your community? Are the voices of lament the voices that you long to hear? Are the voices of lament, suffering, struggle, are those the voices that challenge your spirituality? Not the latest hotshot pastor, but what God is saying through the most broken, the most suffering, for the most who have gone through the most in your neighborhoods and your communities. Are you willing to hear their voices? Lord, I thank you that when we come to the table and we gather at your table, there is no Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, 
There is only one before you. Lord, I thank you that the privileges that come from education, the privileges that come from wealth, the privileges that come from race, those privileges before you, you take away to replace with the glory of God instead. So I thank you that those who have not been honored by our city, those who have not been honored by our society, are those whose voices you call us to hear. I pray, Lord, for a season of lament that calls us out of our exceptionalism and triumphalism, but that the church may find a season of lament where we will find our transformation knowing that you are found in the praise of highest praise, but also in the lament and suffering of your people. We ask this in your name. Amen.